Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our fifth episode of Medical Matters, Season 2. I'm Kendall. And I'm Sunil. And we are a couple of medical students who deeply enjoy bringing on experts from across healthcare and medicine to share their unique insights and stories. So on today's episode, we are excited to be joined by Robert Schooley, uh, the co-director of Bacteriophage Medicine Research at the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics at the University of California, San Diego, the first dedicated phage therapy center in North America. Through his work here, he has made a profound impact in paving the way for bacteriophage medicine to be recognized for the value and potential it truly holds uh, to our society in combating antibiotic resistance, as well as fighting pathogenic bacteria in an unconventional uh, and uniquely efficient manner. Um, I think that we're likely to see only, I think that right now we're likely only seeing the early stages of what this advancement uh, could develop into. Uh, so his accolades are too many to name. Um, he somehow does the work of several people at once. Uh, these titles include, include serving as acting director, uh, acting editor, I should say, of Clinical Infectious Diseases, former chair of the NIAID's AIDS Clinical Trials Group, uh, and professor of infectious disease, disease medicine at uh, UCSD. He's likewise a practicing infectious disease physician at UCSD who, tra uh, who tackles numerous intractable diseases such as antibiotic-resistant bacteria, HIV, hepatitis C, and an array of resilient path pathogens. Finally, he's one of America's top doctors. Uh, Dr. Schooley, I hope I did your life some justice. Uh, more than enough. Nice to, nice to see you today, Sunil. Perfect. Uh, so just to start off, you know, um, my first question is, you know, your life has taken such a fascinating course. Uh, from an outside observer's perspective, I can't imagine leading so many organizations yet having uh, time for a nice steak dinner or even a, even a you know, sit-down meal or to tie your shoe, for that matter. Um, so in accomplishing as much as you have, what motivates you to pursue such a, a dedicated and involved lifestyle? You know, it's I enjoy doing new things, and uh, that's kind of the way my career has evolved. Uh, there are some people who feel comfortable doing the same thing for long periods of time. They get really good at it. Um, I uh, start uh, in a new area and uh, enjoy it, and then uh, try to bring the area up to a point where other people can pick up on it, and uh, I could go on and do something else. I started out my career uh, as a transplant infectious disease position. Um, and about the time I got uh, my feet on the ground doing that, AIDS came along. And um, the same infections that we were seeing in transplant patients, we were seeing in, with this new disease. So that got me engaged in AIDS. I was also a, an immunologist at the time and got involved in some of the immunology related to uh, HIV early on, cytotoxic T cells and those sorts of things. Uh, but as AIDS evolved, it became clear to me it would be a long time before we had an AIDS vaccine. So I dusted off some of my prior interests in antiviral therapy. I had worked on some of the early anti-herpes virus drugs like acyclovir and got involved in the initial uh, studies of any retroviral drugs, AZT and DDI and some of the protease inhibitors. And uh, went from doing um, small trials and doing some work in the lab to uh, getting involved in helping the NIH networks plan their uh, coordinated approach uh, on on um, the uh, pandemic of the of the moment, and um, did that for about uh, about seven years, and um, got interested then in thinking about where HIV was actually having its biggest impact, and where there was so little uh, access to drugs in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, and that's how I got interested in uh, working uh, with uh, colleagues and collaborators there. Uh, I did that until that was really off and running, and uh, PEPFAR came along and uh, began to work with people there to uh, 
taught an enhanced medical education uh, and was doing that um, and uh, some of the other things you talked about when a friend of mine came in with a multi-drug resistant acinetobacter infection, having been um, in Egypt uh, the prior month. And um, as we were taking care of him, it became clear the antibiotics we were using weren't really having much of an effect. And his wife asked me about whether or not we could try using bacteriophages to treat him. And um, you know, we had not done that before, obviously, and um, I did a little bit of reading and um, thought about how we might use them and uh, used my experience as a virologist kind of in reverse, thinking about the phages as viruses and giving them rather than trying to kill them and uh, use them as a, uh, as a um, uh, therapeutic approach to try to take down uh, Tom Patterson's uh, acetobacter infection. And um, uh, to our uh, great delight, he got better, left the hospital and uh, I've been interested in seeing this field move uh, forward in a more scientific way over the last, uh, six or seven years uh, so that it becomes more mainstream and we understand more about how to use these uh, living antibiotics in, a, in the same way we use uh, traditional antibiotics. Really interesting. So what are some advantages to phage therapy? It is relatively novel, right? Um, so what are some advantages compared to other conventional antibiotics? And how is it that they only attack specific bacteria and not healthy human cells? Well, they attack uh, their prey uh, by very specifically binding targets on the surface of those um, of their prey. And each uh, phage has a uh, different uh, target on uh, bacterial cells. And these are not shared by human cells, for example. So the phages uh, will go after a subset of E. coli or a subset of Pseudomonas, uh, but they're not broad spectrum like antibiotics are. Antibiotics have been developed over time to be uh, broader and broader and broader uh, because um, when we see patients, uh, we often don't know what infection they have. If they're seriously ill, we want to pull something out that has a good chance of getting most of what that might be. And by definition, that ends up being a very broad spectrum antibiotic. The benefit to phages uh, from that perspective is that they're narrow uh, in their spectrum. And um, unlike antibiotics that cause major disruption for the microbiome of a patient, phages really just go after the organism that you're treating. A very, it's more like a laser than a, than a uh, hand grenade. And uh, you can go after um, the specific organism in the specific place uh, without leaving the patient uh, at great risk for C. difficile and the other types of infections we get into will mess up their microbiome. Uh, the other advantage to phages uh, is that unlike antibiotics that take um, millions and millions of dollars to discover, develop, um, do all the necessary studies to have them approved, and that may only come out once every 10 years or so with a new class, it's been a while actually since we've even had a new class of antibiotics, while the bacteria have been evolving uh, around us, every day phages are experimenting with bacteria, whether we know it or not. They've been doing this for 300 million years. So we basically have the equivalent of hundreds of billions of chemists uh, playing with bacteria around the world. And we just have to find the right ones for the bacteria that uh, are causing a patient problem. The work's already done by the phages. Uh, they've been doing the uh, selection and the evolution and um, we can take advantage of that and uh, benefit uh, the host. So the uh, 
the things that I think are most um, uh, appealing about them are their unlimited numbers of pages. They have unlimited diversity in terms of the uh, number of um, organisms they can attack. They're 10 to the 31st different phages on the planet, more than the number of grains of sand. And so um, the real challenge with phage therapeutics is finding the right ones for a patient at a given point in time. Uh, other advantages to them are that they're very uh, limited. Uh, there's very little evidence of any toxicity from them. Uh, when you prepare them, you have to purify them and uh, remove endotoxin and some of the other uh, materials that uh, are made by the bacteria in which you grow them. Um, but the phages themselves are really uh, as close to non-toxic as you can get. We're bathed in phages all the time. We have more phages our, in our GI tracts right now than we have bacteria. So uh, it, it's really um, uh, about as um, natural, if you will, uh, form of therapy as, uh, as anything we do in medicine. That's, it's such an interesting concept. I mean, really all of the points that, that you made are, are baffling to the mind, just thinking about how many bacteriophages there are. Um, I think I also read a statistic that there's more bacteriophages, uh, no matter which way you slice it, by mass, by volume, whatever, whatever means, um, than any other life form on earth. So they, they make up the majority of all life on earth. Um, if you, if you consider them life, I guess it depends on the definition. Um, and, you know, just considering the, the, Ubiqu the ubiquity, just how many of them there are. Uh, I guess I, I kind of wonder, like, how does the process of of harvesting specific bacteriophages uh, to be harnessed for you know specific bacterial purposes? How does that go? Like that that process. Well, the uh, phages um, live where bacteria do, and uh, one of the best places to go look for bacteria are in sewage treatment plants. And so what we often will do is go to a sewage treatment plant, filter the uh, water, which leaves the bacteria behind, and you have billions of different phages uh, in uh, the filtrate. Uh, if you have a particular organism you're trying to kill uh, or trying to look for phages, you just put that organism on an auger plate, uh, spread it out like a lawn, and you uh, pour um, a little bit of the sewer water filtrate over that and look for places where the phages eat holes in the bacteria you're trying to kill. That's how the phages uh, got their name. Bacteriophage means bacterial eater. And they were initially uh, uh, noted to um, uh, as bacteriophages when people were looking at river water from India. They looked at bacteria that grew from that river water and realized that if you filter the water, there was stuff in that water that would eat holes in your um, in your cultures, and that's where the word bacteria phage came from. And uh, you, when you recognize a hole uh, in the uh, auger, uh, in the in the bacterial lawn on the auger, you just use a small pipette and you pick that hole, and now you've got a pure phage that you can then uh, grow up uh, and uh, characterize against uh, the organism on the plate. So you can screen millions and millions of phages um, on a single auger plate looking for one that's going to have activity against the organism you're looking for. Wow. That's, yeah, that's, that's remarkable. It sounds, sounds so simple. Uh, I, I'd imagine there's, there's probably some degree of complexity and, and uh, a lot of details to be worked out um, in that regard. You know, if you're, if you're looking at a whole, um, you've got to make sure that, you know, wh whatever, whatever you're sampling, um, 
would be specific to like specific bacteria as opposed to you know the generalized species that could be present within the sewer water uh you know fecal matter is, you know, has many many bacteria in it many different species um but you know could you speak to i guess what the overall cost would look like in terms of purifying uh yeah purifying one of those phages you know, it's gotten a lot cheaper because the uh the materials have have really begun to scale up the First thing you do is just throw it through a filter and that just kind of takes out the bacteria that uh, you grew the phages in. And uh, to use a scientific term, the schmutz, the kind of the dead bacterial uh, sediment, uh, you then have a filtrate that includes phages and mainly endotoxin, which is what you have to get rid of. Uh, we now have ways to, um, uh, you can purify the phages from the liquid phase by choosing a smaller filter and concentrating the phages uh, above the smaller filter, as opposed to using the larger filters that let the bacteria go, let the phages go through to keep the bacteria, then you get a smaller filter that let, lets the liquid go through and keeps the phages. Uh, you can then take uh, the phages and uh, resuspend them and put them over columns uh, that uh, have ligands for endotoxin called endotrap columns. And uh, what comes out the bottom is um, just the liquid and the phages without the endotoxin. Uh, you can density, use density centrifugation if you want to uh, with cesium chloride to get very pure phage bands and uh, have phages that are um, made uh, to high enough quality to uh, be able to give 10 to the ninth, 10 to the 10th as an IV bolus uh, without the patient turning a hair. Uh, the cost of that um, would be several hundred dollars to do that. Um, once you've done it, though, um, you have a method that you can then scale up and it becomes cheaper. And once you've characterized a phage that, um, for example, kills 40% of Staph aureus, you save it. And when you have another patient with Staph aureus, you pull that phage out of your library and see if it happens to be one that uh, goes after that person's staff. And you gradually build libraries that cover most organisms that people would come to the hospital with. Uh, and these libraries of phages uh, can then just be, um, rather than having to go down to the sewage treatment plant every time, can be pulled out uh, when you have a patient that needs a staph phage or a E. coli phage or a pseudomonas phage. So it's really an iterative process that um, is kind of like building a, a, a collection of, of books about different topics. And uh, the better your library, the more interesting it is, and um, uh, the more... Um, uh, bacteria you can have uh, unpleasant conversations with. Really interesting. And it almost sounds like you're engineering a virus from the endotrap toxin filtering that you, you mentioned. And on the topic of cost, I wanted to ask for future applications of phage therapy for antimicrobial resistance, since this seems like a very up and coming and promising field. Do you think that phage therapy would be accessible for all patients in the future um, as far as costs and insurance, but also are there any contraindications for these future therapies, say immunocompromised the way that some uh, vaccines and antibiotics aren't recommended for patients that are immunocompromised you know, going through certain treatments? There are no particular contraindications to them. The, uh, they're cleared um, by the reticular endothelial system uh, from your bloodstream in 90 minutes or so. And so we have to give them a couple times a day. Now, unlike antibiotics that get cleared by your liver, or your kidneys usually, um, uh, and suppose you're taking pneumonia, um, you give a bolus of antibiotics, you get a big concentration of antibiotics in the lungs. 
and then that concentration of antibiotics begins to decay. With phages, you give a bolus of phages, the phages find the bacteria in your lungs, and they grow there, and they uh, go after the bacteria there and amplify themselves. So you have a very different uh, pharmacologic um, uh, consideration to make. You're giving something that doesn't decay, but amplifies as long as there's food there. Uh, in terms of immunocompromised patients, um, they're not dangerous to immunocompromised patients, but like with antibiotics, we don't sterilize people with antibiotics. We just tip the balance in favor of the host. And so antibiotics work best when your immune system works. And with phages, uh, it will be the same way. Having an immune system that works uh, is going to be very uh, helpful to the, will be very helpful to the phage as well. So um, from the standpoint of contraindications, uh, there are no real medical contraindications to the phages. There are some infections we can treat better than others because there are better phage collections for some bacterial species than there are for others. We have uh, a lot of phages that are really quite active against Staph aureus, and some of these phages can knock off a fairly broad swath of the Staph aureus we might see clinically. So if you have a 10 or 12 Staph phages in your library, you can probably come up with a um, phage cocktail that could take care of 90, 95% of the infections that come your way from people who have Staph infection. On the other hand, Acinetobacter, each phage uh, kills a much smaller sliver of the Acinetobacter universe. And to have a similarly uh, broad Acinetobacter phage library, you might have to have two or 300 phages in your library. So you have to uh, uh, take into account the, the uh, relationship between the bacterium uh, and, the, and the phage, the biology of that, when you start building your library. Uh, the other thing that, um, you have to look into with phages is that they can carry genes from one bacterium to the other. Uh, when they, um, phages, as you probably remember from micro, have two different lifestyles. One is the lytic lifestyle, and that's a pretty simple one. They go in, they take over the bacterial uh, cell machinery, they replicate, make 100 to 1,000 progeny phages, and they make lysins that blow up the bacterium and let them go on to the next bacterium. That's the very simple. Uh, lifestyle that um, we like to have in phages we use therapeutically. Phages can also have a lysogenic lifestyle. And when they're lysogenic, uh, they go into a bacterium and they integrate into the bacterium, into the bacterial DNA, and they go silent. And they, when the bacterium replicates, it takes, it replicates the uh, phage DNA and uh, takes the phage to each of the progeny uh, bacteria. And then periodically, uh, that phage will um, uh, become active uh, and are be induced, as we call it. And then when they do that, they become lytic and can go on to infect other bacteria. We don't like to use them for therapy because they can move genes around. If you have a multi-drug resistant E. coli, a lysogenic phage could uh, move the drug resistance genes from that E. coli to others. Uh, it can move a toxin gene uh, from a, a bacterial species to another one. So we uh, don't want them to be able to uh, be lysogenic. We can get around that by two things. One is we can select phages that are only lytic. And recently, people have begun to learn how to take lysogenic phages and uh, manipulate their DNA so they don't have the capability of being lysogenic. Um, the two key enzymes that uh, lysogenic phages uh, 
bring with them are one that helps them integrate, it's an integrase, uh, and another is called a repressor uh, protein. And these two proteins are what allow a phage to come in, uh, integrate into the DNA of its new host, and then repress any new phages coming in. So man, uh, a scientist named Graham Heffel at the University of Pittsburgh has learned how to surgically take out either the repressor gene or the um, or the integrase gene and make a phage that otherwise would not be suitable for therapy, uh, one that is quite suitable because all it knows how to do now is to uh, become lytic. So phage engineering is moving along as well. Wow, that, I mean, it really speaks to just the just the miracles that that it seems that we're that we're pulling off and you know we'll continue to continue to do um yeah to to genetically edit the virus to do exactly what we want and just like you mentioned uh you know in terms of um the the decay the decay of these bacteriophages uh it decays when you want them to and it doesn't decay when you don't want them to so it'll it'll not decay in the areas where you want them to be active and otherwise it'll clear your system um these are all like such amazing notions to me. It really does um, get me to wonder from a historical, uh, historical perspective. Um, I was reading that back in the day, this is like the early 20th century, uh, bacteri bacteriophages, they garnered a lot of attention uh, around the same time the antibiotics were gaining traction. Um, but as history played out, you know, penicillin was discovered by Fleming and, uh, you know, became a miracle drug during the world wars leading to a, it seems like a drop off in sentiment for a short time, but you know, antibiotic resistance became known and, and it started becoming prevalent as soon as really like the 1950s. Um, so why do you think that phage research, uh, didn't uh, regain that significant traction at the time? Um, in other words, I guess like what made the antibiotic resistance or the antibiotic research receive more funding as opposed to, you know, funding the alternative phage therapies? There are several different factors. The first was that um, the development of phages wasn't, appro wasn't approached scientifically. People didn't think about um, the uh, narrow host range of any given phage. And they used to make um, empirically phage cocktails uh, that consisted of 20 or 30 different uncharacterized phages uh, that uh, they would just kind of whip up in a, in a vat of different types of bacteria and pour into a filter and then pour into a bottle and sell for um, medical indications as opposed to specific therapy. They use them, uh, by that I mean syndromically. And so some of the phages were sold for diarrhea, some were sold for uh, the grip, some were sold for boils, uh, without thinking about what the uh, bacteria uh, you were trying to treat that caused those infections. And without any measurement of whether or not the phages, the phage cocktails that were being sold uh, were even killing the bacteria that was causing the patient's illness. So they were not developed scientifically in a way that you could assess uh, what you were doing microbiologically. When you look at the clinical trials that were done, um, because people weren't looking at whether or not the organisms that caused the infectious diseases were being cleared, uh, people were just characterized as better, worse, no change. Uh, and um, as we all know, you get over diarrhea over time. You, sometimes it seems like it takes forever, but you do. Uh, and um, uh, you get over some other infections sometimes, others you don't. And uh, having just long lists of better, worse, better, worse um, with phage products that were not uniform, that uh, each time were different because they just were made up kind of haphazardly, uh, left people with no way to assess what was happening. 
the other thing that was attractive about antibiotics is that they were broad spectrum. They got broader and broader and companies could market them for uh, many different types of infection. And uh, once you had patented an antibiotic, you could make exactly the same molecule over and over again and sell it over and over again for a wider and wider array of infections. So they had that benefit that um, you didn't have with phages that were remained very narrow in terms of spectrum. Then finally, um, the um, uh, phages were embraced in the Soviet Union. We were in the middle of um, uh, the same kind of competition we are now with the uh, Soviet Union and uh, the, uh, the, the the West uh, kind of in some ways reacted to the fact this was a communist form of therapy and uh, went went for capitalism, which was antibiotics, as we've seen uh, as the cost have escalated. That's really interesting that you put that into the political point of view, because phage therapy has been dated for as early as World War One, as uh, Sunil was saying, uh, defense against dysentery. So. It's really interesting how that played out in history as far as coming off the the um, headliners in, in healthcare for, for a while. But now that we're past that, and it sounds like phage therapy is gaining traction again, what are some current political or legal parameters and barriers surrounding phage research and development that you could see hindering her progress even now? The most important thing for phages right now is to identify is to um, uh, investigate them the same way, exactly the same way you would if they were antibiotics. But for two reasons, one is we know how to evaluate antibiotics. Uh, you uh, collect a group of people with the same type of infection, and you look at whether or not people who got your new antibiotic do better than the people who got the old antibiotic. And uh, you look to see whether or not the organism you're trying to kill is killed by the antibiotics. So we need to do the same sort of uh, clinical investigation with phages uh, so that we can characterize them in the same way. Uh, to do that, we have to uh, have clinical trials that tell us how best to dose them. We have to know uh, what the best route of administration is. Is it better to give them intravenously or use them topically, orally? Part of that's gonna depend on the infection. What dose should you use? How often should you give it? Uh, again, like with antibiotics, that may depend on the type of infection. So for example, if you're treating somebody with um, a uh, large number of bacteria in lungs, like a patient with pneumonia might have, you could argue that unlike antibiotics, where you'd have to just keep giving the patient antibiotics over and over again, with phages, you might be able to give one dose and have them uh, take off in the lung and, um, and uh, replicate there and tip the balance in favor of the host. On the other hand, if you're trying to use phages to treat a, uh, to break up a biofilm uh, on a prosthetic hip, uh, you might need to uh, use an almost continuous infusion because the phage is gonna be cleared by the bloodstream and there will be uh, not enough bacteria in any one place to continue to auto-populate the site of infection. So we're gonna have to learn principles of phage therapy just like we did principles of antibiotic therapy. Uh, and uh, began to learn how to generalize them in ways that we can use phages intelligently. Uh, the other thing we need to do is to learn how to use them with antibiotics. Uh, if we had a new antibiotic, we wouldn't say, well, we're getting out of all old antibiotics. Uh, we'd say, we're gonna learn to use them with antibiotics we have available, and phages are just new antibiotics. So uh, they have um, 
there are, are some antibiotics that are synergized, that will synergize with phages. And uh, we need to learn what those principles are so that uh, we can put them into the overall, overall armamentarium in an intelligent way. From the commercial perspective, um, companies have to figure out how to make phages available um, sustainably. In other words, uh, you can't give them away, but you have to figure out how to make them in a way that um, you can uh, produce them at scale and treat patients at scale. And um, for some infections that might be coming up with a fixed phage cocktail uh, that may have four phages that company A will sell for staph infection um, and uh, another four phage cocktail that another company might sell uh, for staph infection, another cocktail or two cocktails that you might use for E. coli. So uh, we're gonna have to come up with uh, well characterized, uh, well studied um, uh, products that can be commercialized. Companies have been a little bit reticent to get into phages for a couple of reasons. One is, as you said, it, uh, phage therapy kind of went out of vogue uh, in the 1930s. And uh, if you're a middle manager in pharma and uh, you're thinking about advancing your career, uh, running up to your boss and saying, hey, I got this great idea from about 80 years ago. Uh, let's take it and run with it is, is not always seen as a career building move. Uh, and uh, if you say, I've got a great idea for a new antibiotic um, and that works, uh, you've, you're kind of a, a rock star. If it doesn't work, they say, well, all these antibiotics fail. So uh, taking the risk is something that a lot of companies have been uh, worried about doing uh, because uh, of the of the baggage that phages have had for being around for as many years and not finding a product. And then finally, uh, pharma has to find a way that phages can be, uh, the intellectual property can be made uh, safe so that they can make them, sell them, have enough of a profit to keep doing it uh, and, uh, and not just have them um, uh, as lost leaders. Because in our society, if you can't uh, generate resources to make what you want to sell, you can't sell anything. Now, they've been worried about phages being natural products and therefore not patentable. In other words, if I go down to a sewage treatment plant and uh, filter some uh, sewage water and come up with a phage, who owns that phage? Well, right now, uh, those kinds of phages you can't really patent. On the other hand, you can take several different phages and come up with a specific cocktail that you've worked on and patent the cocktail. So you, you've got a combination of phages that's unique and that has intellectual property associated with that. The other thing you can do is engineer phages is what I talked about to make them uh, uh, either kill better uh, or to uh, be uh, non-lysogenic. Uh, there are also uh, companies that are engineering phages in a way that instead of killing bacteria with license, they carry Cas CRISPR enzymes. They kill uh, bacteria with uh, um, old-fashioned uh, Cas CRISPR uh, restriction uh, enzymes. So uh, synthetic phages are uh, another way to do it. So I think those are the kinds of things pharma is beginning to think through now. And I think you'll see more and more uh, uh, of an embrace of uh, phage as a, as a bona fide endeavor over the next five or 10 years that uh, it's taking them some time to, to think about. It's a, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think like definitely these, uh, these legal, political and, you know, 
capitalistic hurdles that they're they're definitely uh, difficult to overcome. But on that note, I do think that uh, the incentives the incentives could be there, uh, considering considering how much time it's been. You know, considering how uh, our society has moved. For example, I don't think the fear of communism is, is as strong as it was 80 years ago. So maybe maybe there is a little bit more willingness to to take uh, those risks. Maybe not within the largest pharmaceutical companies, but maybe some uh, uh, some small startups or uh, potentially even some university labs that you know put, that somehow make the leap. Um, and you know, I guess on, on that note. Um, I know that this may not be analogous whatsoever, but we talk about like nuclear fusion and uh, it's always this technology that's, you know, 30 years away. Um, it's, uh, it's something that we've been saying for, I think over 70 years. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not analogous in a number of ways, uh, but I just want to get your thoughts on, you know, what you think the rough timeline uh, could be for a widespread uh, adoption, widespread availability uh, of this kind of technology to the masses. Um, and yeah, yeah. So I guess what, um, what, what the timeline could be. Well, I think we'll start seeing, uh, specific, um, uh, indications, uh, coming along commercially in the next decade. Uh, we, where we are right now is the NIH is finally beginning to fund, um, uh, traditional clinical research into how to use phages. Uh, and as we learn more about what the pharmacology is and what the pharmacokinetics are, pharmacodynamics, um, we can begin to look at uh, different clinical indications for which antibiotics don't do as, that, as good a job as we'd like them to do. So this will include uh, people with cystic fibrosis uh, get into trouble with multidrug resistant bacteria over time. Uh, one of the things that phages can do uh, is uh, one of the things the bacteria do when they're uh, on a surface of a, say, a pacemaker wire or a um, prosthetic hip is they create biofilms that make it very hard for antibiotics to get in to kill the bacteria. Phages can break up biofilms. And so I could very easily see uh, people adding phages to uh, uh, antibiotics to try to be able to treat prosthetic infections uh, without having to remove the prosthesis uh, sterilize the wound and put another prosthesis in. That's really very morbid for patients to do that. Uh, I can see, uh, so those kinds of, of clinical trials are pretty easy to do, and I could very easily see uh, those getting done in the next handful of years, and then phage therapeutics being approved by the FDA and those indications and moving on from there. That's really interesting, especially what you mentioned about the hip prostheses and cystic fibrosis, because that sounds like changes that we'll see in our future practice in a couple of years when we graduate, which is really exciting. And yeah, unless you retire, unless you retire very early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not sure if we have plans for that yet. <laughs> I'm practicing for at least five years. The five years is my minimum. <laughs> okay. Okay. Very, very good. Very good. But wow, the potential for this breakthrough could be immense for both patients, us as providers, and society alike. So one last question for you, as someone at the forefront, is what excites you most about this field? Well, what excites me that we're opening new ways to treat difficult infections. Uh, we've been kind of at a standstill for the last 15 or 20 years with some of these multi-drug resistant bacterial pathogens. And... Uh, we now have a new set of tools that uh, we need to learn how to use. And um, we can do that, we can benefit a lot of patients and we may be able to stay ahead of this kind of ongoing wave of 
more and more multi-drug resistant uh, bacterial infections that uh, threaten the lives of millions of people over the next 20 or 30 years. So it, it really could be a game changer for our ability to um, compete with um, evolution in bacteria in a more effective way than just turning 20 or 30 chemists loose on, on a bacterium. Uh, having millions of phages going after it's probably uh, a good idea. That's exciting. It sounds like Sunil and I came at the right time to enter medicine then. And really exciting for what that'll mean for our future careers. Yeah, they say for so many things that, uh, like, for example, space travel, you know, we're, uh, we're born too late to visit the moon and born too early to, to visit the stars. But I think in this regard, we're probably right on time, or at least pretty close to on time. So definitely within our lifetimes, I, I strongly look forward to uh, to seeing the potential of this technology. Um, you know, seeing such a, a naturalistic solution uh, be reconsidered and, you know, after being basically forgotten for, uh, like, I mean, like we've talked about decades, decades because of, uh, because of communism um, or the, the fear of communism, I should say, the Red Scare, um, to have that wash away and to, to rediscover um, such, a, such a beautiful um, way, of, way of treating antibiotics that has existed for way longer than humans have existed. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of years, if not more so, um, to have to be brought back to the forefront. I, I definitely see that uh, humanity would benefit greatly. Um, and on that note, we want to be respectful of your time. So um, I guess any, any last parting thoughts before we, before we end off? Well, since you're talking microbiology, just think of gram-negative rods as the next red scare. <laughs> Very true. Multi-drug-resistant bacterial uh, gram-negative organisms. So uh, let's go after them. <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Hey. And uh, this has been Medical Matters. Uh, we'll see you guys next month.